We are excited about what God's doing at North. Thank you so much for being here, whether you are joining us here in person or online. Uh, We are glad to have you. We want to make sure that you are aware of those Connect cards, as Will has made mention, as well as Samantha. Um, But online, you have that as well as a resource for you. So look at the original post, and you can see there if you make a decision today, if there's a prayer request that we can lift up for you or anything else that you need to communicate to us, uh, please use that resource uh, as well as they're found in your bulletins in person. But we are continuing our Scent series our Scent series, tracing how God has called us to minister and approach missions. And so we've talked about ministering where we're at. We talked about how God had called the disciples to Jerusalem, right? Their immediate context, their hometown, where they lived, where they were at, where they interacted every single day. But God has not just called us where we're at. Uh, God has called us in multiple places simultaneously. These are not, uh, these are not ors, either ors. These are also and. God has called us to all of these areas. And so we find that in Acts chapter 1. Uh, if you're reading along, you can turn to Acts chapter 1 if you'd like, but it will be on the screen. We will be tracking in John chapter 7 beginning today. But Acts, Acts 1 verse 8 tells us, this is our model verse for our mission strategy, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we see four different areas, four distinct areas, Jerusalem, Judea, all Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we as a church will format our mission strategy around these four areas and what they look like as it relates to today. And so we've talked about where we're at, ministering where we're at and missions where we're at. Today, we're gonna talk about being sent where we are familiar. Where we are familiar for in Judea, and and I would would argue in Galilee as well, uh, based upon the populace of the people, this was a very popular, very uh, common area for the Jews. And so when Jesus tells his disciples, you'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, he's talking about a community. He's talking about a city. When he says Judea, he is talking about a people group. He's talking about a people group specifically that's common to themselves. And so, and so we look today, not just at where we're at, but where we are familiar and we will continue to branch out from there. But in John chapter 7, In John chapter 7, you find certain groups of people in Judea. When we talk about a Judean ministry strategy, we are talking about people that are similar to us, that grew up like us, similar cultural backgrounds that we find and we encounter in daily rhythms of life. And so the first thing that we find in the context of a Judean ministry is our family. Firstly, we find our family. And if not your family, you may be thinking, well, I don't live near my family. What I would say to you is, yeah, but you got some that might as well be, right? You've got family and then you got people that might as well be family. Chances are you may be sitting with them together today, right? Like like you've got people that are as close as family with you. And And so when we talk about family, we're not just speaking of blood kin, although that's important. We are talking about those that are closest to us. And so where we pick up with Jesus, in Jesus' ministry in John chapter 7, we see some barriers that he encounters 
as he attempts to reach his family. Now it bears, bear in mind that this, what we're about to read did not happen in Judea, but it happened in the province of where Jesus grew up. All right, it happened in Galilee. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, a town in the bigger region, the greater region of, Na- of, of Galilee. And so this happened in Galilee that his brothers came to him. And so we find it in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Jesus had already begun his ministry and had already established quite a rapport. And there were multiple in, in Jerusalem that did not like him. And so they were seeking to kill him. Now, the Feast of the Booths was at hand. This was a religious observance. It was more or less a giant camping trip for the entire nation of Israel, that their families would go, they would live in tents, in booths. That's why you hear the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. They would live in a tent and it was to remind them of the wandering. It was to remind them of when Israel was led by God throughout of Egypt into the Promised Land. They lived in tabernacles, they lived in tents. And so they would have this giant feast and they would all live on this giant camping trip around the province of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus Jesus is in Galilee, but this is happening in Jerusalem. So the brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Saying, hey, you got some boys, don't you? Why don't you go? Hang out with your boys and let them see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. What they're saying is, hey, you're going around doing all these miracles, telling people not to tell, uh, tell on you, not to tell who did them. Like you're doing all this stuff in secret, but you've, I know what mama, I know the bedtime stories mama told us, okay? That you, they're, you're claiming to be the son of God. Why don't you go somewhere where you can make that public? A giant camping party sounds like the great place to be your coming out party. Let people know who you are. But they knew the threats as well. In essence, they were telling him, go. Go and let your wonders known and get out of our hair. And truthfully, if you die, you die. Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, make your word clear. Lord, reduce everything I have to say today. God, to solely what you desire to communicate to your people. God, have your will and way in this place and in our hearts most importantly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Jesus was raised in the town of Nazareth. He was raised in Galilee. His brothers had come to him as he was performing works and doing some miracles in Galilee, but overall rather quiet. And they tell him, why don't you go somewhere where you can actually make a name for yourself? Why don't you get out of here? Go to the Feast of the Booths, make yourself known, do these wonderful acts. And by the way, Jesus actually does do that. He tells them no, but then he goes secretly and he does actually do some of these things. But they are telling him, get out of here. And the reason is, can you hear the skepticism in their voice? Go on. Get out of here. Can you imagine what it would have been like? Now, my sister talks about being the younger sister. She talks about living in my shadow. And 
when she went to Hazel Green, she was not known as Rachel Ostrisky. She was known as what? Middle kids, second born kids. What was she known as? She was known as Alan's little sister, right? Living in the shadow of her brother. And I've been the way I am all my life. And so I was loud and I was obnoxious. People that know me from them are shaking their head, yes. I was loud and obnoxious from the very beginning. And whether it was good or bad, and it was a mixed bag, I'll assure you, my sister got cast as Alan's sister because she was living in my shadow. Can you imagine what Jesus' brothers and sisters grew up in? And being in the shadow, it's bad enough that you're in your older brother's shadow, but your older brother, oh, by the way, his dad is God, right? Can you imagine his parents getting on to him? Onto them, right? James, why don't you just do it like Jesus did it, right? Like, why don't you just look like, like, don't fight over the last roll, just bless it, multiply it, and make seven, right? Like, just why don't you do things like your brother did? Like, why, can you imagine the resentment that had to build up over time for them? Can you imagine what the, what the, his brothers and sisters thought when they were going back to get Jesus who was left at the temple, right? Now, they didn't know that at the time. He was just lost, right? Can you imagine going back like, oh, Jesus finally going to get it. The perfect child, the perfect kid, the good kid, the golden child is about to get his butt lit up, right? And they get there and Jesus drops a lame line like, mother, I had to be about my father's business. And he got away with it. Can you not hear the resentment in the things that they're saying? Even his own brothers and sisters didn't, family did not believe who he was. They were living in this shadow. There's funny stories in scripture when Jesus is teaching and he's saying something really controversial. And he's talking about, um, he, he, he's specifically, he's talking about uh, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he's trying to tell these religious rulers sins that can't be forgiven as if they don't know. And he's making some enemies. And the scripture tells us that someone, while he's in the middle of his sermon, taps him on the shoulder. Hey, uh, uh, Jesus, your mom and them are outside. Uh, they they ready to, they want to talk to you about something. What are they going to talk about? Hey, you're doing a great job, son. Keep it going. No, they want to pull the kid away. He's like, dude, you're you're, you're going to kill. You're going to get yourself killed. You'll get yourself stoned right here. Like, come on, let's head back to the house. We'll have some fried chicken. Like, let's leave these people alone. They're getting angry. See their faces. They're getting angry. And what does he do? No, nah, I'm good. Right? He just brushes his family off. Sometimes the hardest ministry that we will ever do is in the context of our very own family. You see, for Jesus, the gospel barrier in Judea, or in his Judea, in his hometown, in the area of Galilee, was shared experience. They knew him. They grew up with Jesus, right? And so all of these shared experiences, whether they were good or bad, had accumulated in his... his it was so great, in fact, even though I'm sure his brothers and sisters had known, had heard, right? As I mentioned, with the bedtime stories alone... But they did not believe him. And so he grew up with this skepticism. We find it not just in his family. We find it with people that knew him and knew him well. Mark 6, 1 through 3. You can turn there. It's not in your, on your screen because I added it. I went rogue and added it this weekend, much to Will's dismay. Uh, he didn't, he, we can't follow along. But Mark chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. Listen to what it says. 
It says, he went away from there and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? (laughs) The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus... We know your kinfolk. We know your roots. Here's your brothers and sisters. There's your mom and them. We know, we know you, right? Lick skillet vernacular there. We know you. We've met you. Here's your family. And you go, to, you go off to Judea. You get baptized and you have a Pocahontas moment where the dove ascends and lights on your shoulder and the big booming voice. And now you're too good for us. You're too good for us. High, you know, you're too highfalutin for this Nazareth bunch. Nazareth is the only place where Jesus was unable to do all that seemingly he desired and intended to do because they took offense. There was shared experience. And for us, I know this isn't the case with Christ, but for us, we see shared experience working against us in two ways. One on the front end, right? Because we can look at some of our family and some of us feel like we have no authority whatsoever to come to them because they know us. They know where we've been. They know what we've done. And for me to come to my brother or my sister or my cousin or uncle or aunt or grandparents would be the ultimate in hypocrisy because they know me. What I would say if you feel that way is you are discounting the grace of God. I would say that you are the perfect person to go to them because they knew you. Not they know you, they knew you. And there is something new about you. And so go to them on the front end, right? Shared experience can be a problem on the front end, right? We don't, we don't want to go to them because they have this over our head, but it can be a problem on the back end as well. Because if I tell them, that I'm a Christ follower, if I invite them into relationship, if I put myself out there like this spiritual giant, the first time I act a fool at the family picnic, they're coming after me, right? They're going to hold me accountable for all of these things that I've said, right? It can work on us on either end. The shared experience, though there's, though we are familiar with the people around us, sometimes the hardest mission field in the world can be our family. But yet Jesus, when he sent his disciples, he always sent them first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Who was he sending them to? He was sending them to his people, his family, those that were like family for him, those that knew him best. He was sending them to those first. It's interesting to me that we see this testimony of Jesus' brethren. The word is kinfolk. We're not positive if it's brothers and sisters, but we know, according to Mark 6, that he had brothers and sisters. But we assume that it was. But for James, his half-brother, to go from a place where he did not believe in Jesus to writing the book of James as a bond servant of Jesus. You could translate that, right? A bond servant of my older brother, (laughs) my half-brother at least, 
right? That James was solely committed. History tells us what we believe. Tradition tells us that he probably accepted Christ sometime after the crucifixion and ascension. But he became a leader in the church. So Jesus succeeded in his Judean ministry. His mother, obviously, like his father, his brothers and sisters eventually came around. We have the testimony of James written out in scripture that he was one of the salient leaders in the church in Jerusalem, right? And so he ministered to his family. But the other thing that we find in Judea is we find friends. And when I say friends, I mean people that may not be like family. They may not be your closest of friends, but they are your acquaintances. They are the people that know you and that you know. You recognize their names. Um, They grew up like you. In Judea, much like in the Southeast, we share a lot of things in common with a lot of folks. And Jesus' biggest issue was not with the tax collector and the sinner. It was not with the Gentile. It was not with the prostitute. It was not with any of these pagan people far away from God. Jesus' greatest issues came from people that grew up just like him. Shared the same classroom in rabbi school, right? Like grew up just like he did. It was the people that he had the greatest issue with. Listen to this encounter. John chapter 8. Turn over just a couple pages. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 39. Let's look at Jesus' ministry to his friends. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. They were speaking of a physical lineage. They, Abraham was their physical descendant. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, then you would be doing the works that Abraham did. So let's look at the works that Abraham did compared to you. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. When Abraham heard God's word, he believed it and he believed it instantly and it was counted to him as righteousness. But you have not believed. This is not what Abraham did. Verse 41, you are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father. We have God. Through the promise of Abraham, we are inheritance. We are inheritors of that promise, beneficiaries of that promise through Abraham. And so the same way that Israel was God's chosen people, these people were claiming that God is their father. They were not illegitimate as the Samaritans were. I think it's funny that later they called Jesus, so you're a Samaritan and you have a demon, right? Like, and he's like, nope, neither of those, <laughs> you know? And so, and so they say, like, there's no way then that you could possibly be born of Abraham because these are all the things that Abraham's supposed to do. This is their speaking culture more than anything else. And then Jesus, Jesus says in verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? 44, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Well, this just went over swell. Can you imagine? The buddies you grew up with, you are not of your father, Abraham, and by extension, God that you've grown up your whole life to understand and believe you are of 
your father, the devil. By the way, you're believing his lies right now. He is the father of lies and you're believing his lies as we speak. Many Jews believed, regardless of their spirituality, that because they were born with Abraham as their physical ancestor, then God was their spiritual father by default. But what we see in Zechariah, in the Old Testament specifically, we see the change from a physical lineage that was all important in the Old Testament to a spiritual heritage that the the family of God has moved from just being on David to being on the perfect David who would create a lineage after him that would be the redeemed, would be the church. And because it didn't come in the wrapper that they thought it should come in, it didn't come in the culture that they had grown up in, by the way, that Jesus had grown up in, they balked against it. You see, the gospel barrier here was cultural similarity. It was cultural similarity. And we experienced the same thing in the South. In the geographical Southeast, we find a lot of folks that agree with us on a lot of things. We agree on how to treat somebody, don't we, guys? Stranger comes in, you don't send him on his way. You invite him in. You give him a mason jar full of sweet tea. You sit with him on the porch for a while. You help him figure things out. You get him back on his feet. You pull him up by his bootstraps and you send him on his merry way, right? We have all the terminology down of what we do. What are we talking about? Southern hospitality, right? There's a certain way you treat people. We can agree in the South on some of those things. I think most of us in this room probably agree on the importance of sports. We may not agree on who we root for, but we can agree that any other conference other than the Southeastern Conference in the area, at least the football, is illegitimate, right? Like, we can agree on certain things. Most of us in the South, rural North Alabama, can probably agree on mostly conservative politics. We're typically red, not blue, and we can have discussions, and we can have long Twitter debates, and we can have major discussions on why we are red, not blue, We can even agree on the importance of church and church attendance and being involved in a local body. It's why when you go to somebody that doesn't go to church, there's immediate shame when they they try to tell you. You go, hey, man, you go to church anywhere, especially as a pastor. Let me just tell you, I bring an extra level of shame I didn't realize. I'm not used to it. And so I ask people that question sometimes, and they're like, oh, man, a pastor is asking me. You know, and they're just... Man, I, I'm going to be honest, I, I, I just don't, I, I don't go. You know, like, and, and you get the hint, like, through their half breaths, right? And so, and so, why? Because there's a cultural norm that you go to church. We can agree on that. It's, it's important. And many of us will leave the conversation there. Oh, he goes to church, so he's fine. I know the church he attends. I know the pastor of his church. They're good. But if ministering to your friends in Jesus' context means anything, it's that John 8 tells us if you are going to experience God, you must join yourself with Jesus, not a culture. You must join yourself. You must espouse yourself to the Messiah because if you are not connected to him, you are not God's children. Listen, one of the greatest heresies that make us feel good and it, it sounds great and it's wonderful, right? We're all God's kids. Not according to Jesus. 
These people were of their father. The devil, all of us were born into sin. We were born of our father, the devil. It's why adoption is necessary. We are adopted into the family of God. We were once in the kingdom of darkness, but we've been adopted into the kingdom of his marvelous light. God has changed our eternal destiny by his grace and his adoption of our lives. We are not all God's children because if we believe that, then we believe that cultural friend that agrees with us to a certain extent is generally okay when it comes to eternity. And to believe that is to condemn that person from our perspective to an eternity in hell. But Jesus doesn't stop there. In fact, his issue with them was the very culture that he himself had grown up in. We cannot stop short of the gospel in any mission context. In any mission context. It is what changes, that is the difference between charity and missions is the gospel. It's the transformative power to not meet a, just a physical need, but a spiritual need. So we have family, we have friends in Judea, but we also have foreigners. Even in a place that we are familiar, there are people in our context that are not familiar. They are strangers. They are people that... Uh, whether they're from different nationalities or people that we just don't know and they just are, aren't not like us, right? Those who did not grow up like you. This doesn't deal directly with Jesus's ministry. Acts chapter 10, what we're gonna read last week, we talked about Acts one through eight, dealing with all of the ministry in Jerusalem, but then it starts to trickle out. In Acts, one, in Acts eight, they begin to trickle out. There's a dispersion because of because of. Uh, persecution, and they begin to trickle out. But the first places they go are to places and Gentiles that live in the same region they do. We find ourselves introduced to a man named Cornelius. Cornelius, who is probably Italian by birth, probably a believer in the Roman, in the Roman pantheon of gods, polytheistic, pagan, but he was a devout man And remember the story, right? Peter, who is the head of the Jerusalem church, obviously has some serious racial issues and biases to work through, right? He's sleeping on the top of a roof, and in his sleep, he has a vision given by God where a sheet comes down and all of these unclean animals are offered to him. And God says, my favorite verse in all of scripture, as it relates to creating some testosterone flow in me, right? He says, Peter... Rise, kill, and eat. Sums up a man's life right there now. Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And what does Peter respond with? No, God, I won't do that because these are unclean animals. And Jesus responds, don't call unclean what I am calling you to because I have cleaned them. The blood of Christ transcends nationality, it transcends gender, it transcends political party, hello, it transcends nationality, it transcends language, it transcends geography, it transcends culture, it transcends raisings, it transcends all of these things. The blood of Christ has cleaned and has given the ability to make clean every person. Every person. And so then he gets a knock on the door. Acts 10, verse 22. 
And these three strangers who came knock on the door and they say to Peter, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and he went away with them. He left Joppa and he went to Caesarea. Caesarea. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Look at verse 34, 36. He gets there. He begins to preach to not just Cornelius, but to all of the Gentiles. So Peter opened his mouth in verse 34 and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Now, if you'd have asked Acts 9, Peter, he would have said, Yep, God plays favorites. But in light of the gospel, in light of Calvary, the foot of of the cross. The ground at the foot of the cross has been made level. So it doesn't matter sinner or saint. It doesn't matter Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter male or female. We are all equally desperate for God and he is made and given equal access to God. There is no partiality. Listen to what he says. But in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What had the Jews just done? They had rejected Jesus. They had rejected the message. They had crucified Jesus. But those that do right, those that are willing to surrender their life and be in obedience to God, to surrender their life to his lordship, are made acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Not the Jews. He is Lord of all. It's a paradigm shift that we see from the Old Testament to the New in light of the resurrection of Christ. And they received, and he continued to preach. (laughs) How'd you like that? An invitation, and then a second part of the message, right? They received, and he began to preach. And as he was still speaking, Acts 44, 1044, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who would hear the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They were still in their context. They were living, they were still in Judea, but there were foreigners that had come in. In fact, many of them would have had very, very negative feelings toward these people because they were occupying a place they didn't belong. These were people that were often cruel to the Israelites, cruel to the people of God, but these were foreigners These were people that weren't like them, that hadn't grown up in the South, didn't know anything about Southern hospitality. And all of a sudden, God condones what is happening in that room. Because we can do plenty of stuff without God condoning it. But God condones what's happening in this room by giving his Holy Spirit. And they are amazed. God doesn't just call us to the nations. He calls us... Overseas, He calls us to the nations where we are. Just because someone is not like you does not mean that God has not called you to minister to them out of their context, original context, but in your original context, God has placed them here for a purpose for you to reach them with the gospel. The gospel barrier here, though, is cultural differences, right? In the same way the cultural similarities can be, you turn that on its head, cultural differences can be a barrier, 
right? Well, I don't know anything about them. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to approach them. I don't know really what they believe. What if they have some weird beliefs? God has called us to steward not just the nations as the church. And y'all, this is bigger than an American thing. If we're not careful, we can allow ourselves to put our patriotism and citizenship in the United States on equal ground with our citizenship in heaven. And we can see not the church as the sending agent, but the government and our way of life, the democracy, the republic of the United States of America as the sending organization and that with the American dream comes the gospel. When we do that, we are missing the point entirely. Listen, uh, boy, have we missed it to equate national affiliation with God's favor. If, if, if this passage taught us anything. It's that God's chosen people were not exempt from being in obedience to him. So God can only bless. And when he only, he can only bless those that are in obedience to him. And God will bless the United States in as much as we are obedient to him. Our goal is not ultimately to change the United States. The goal is to change the kingdom of God, to transform, to make a difference in God's economy, not the economies of this world. Now, in doing that, the economies of this world look different. But that is not the point. We as a church must be okay if we understand that God's plan to reach the nations does not involve the United States. It doesn't involve the bastion of freedom and justice for all. The home of the free and the land of the brave. Land of the free, home of the brave. Y'all know what I mean. We've got to be okay with that. Listen, I'm not being anti-American. I love living in the land that I live in. I'm not being anti-American, but I'm showing you my priorities. The church and my citizenship in heaven must be given higher priority than my citizenship anywhere here on earth. And when these mix, you have what's happened, what happened in Israel. People who believe that some cultural affiliation will gain them special access to the presence of God. Because shared experiences with family can be a, a barrier, right? Cultural similarities can be a barrier. Ultimately, God has called us to minister in our context. Well, that means people that are implanted out of their own context into our context. You can go to the nations. Y'all, we live so close in, in, in Huntsville, in Nashville, my goodness, in, in Athens alone. You can experience the nations in your Judea. And if you haven't, it's because we become spiritually lazy. God has called us to all these things. And so for us as a church, we want to be active in doing that. We want to give you an opportunity to get involved in Judean ministry. Now, it just so happens that it's a church that is planted in Tuscaloosa, right? It's a church that's planted in Tuscaloosa called the Church of the Oaks. You're going to meet Britton Latham. He's the pastor of the Church of the Oaks. But we want to give you an on-ramp. And here's why we do it. We're doing it strategically because in a college campus, you have all three of those really quick. You know somebody that's probably been to the University of Alabama. You've got friends and you know people that are like you that 
the Southern Hospitality, Southeast people that, that are there, but the nations are there as well. All three of them are in the melting pot that is a college university. And so God's opened a door for us to minister with a great friend of mine, and I want to introduce you to him, and I want you to see how you can get involved with Church of the Oaks. Y'all check this out. Thanks so much for wanting to know more about how you can help start Church of the Oaks. There's really so much that I want to tell you about, but for right now, I want to keep it kind of brief. Then we'll have links at the end if you want to go even deeper in what we're doing. So here's what I want you to know first. We are compelled by the Great Commission. The last thing Jesus did on this earth was to send his followers out to go and make disciples. Followers of Christ are supposed to be disciple makers. So that's our mandate. That's our charge. That's our one task to send disciple makers of Jesus by simply being disciple makers of Jesus. We're not trying to build a giant crowd or something. We want to see people come to know and follow Jesus and then start helping other people do that same thing. So we're starting Church of the Oaks in Tuscaloosa to do exactly that. As the city of Tuscaloosa and the University of Alabama has grown over the last 10 years, so is the need for gospel-driven, disciple-making churches. Right now, on campus alone, there are more than 35,000 people disengaged from the gospel. And every year, almost 10,000 new people arrive on campus here. 60% of them are from out of state and around the world. I can't think of a more strategic mission field. But this isn't just about one church in one city. There are other college towns all over the place that need strong churches. So we're partnering with the Well Network, a group of churches working together to plant 16 churches by 2026. But in Tuscaloosa, we know that it takes a great team to reach big goals, right? So we're building a team to help start this church. And I want you to be a part of it. We call it our launch team. It's a multi-generational group of people that are committed to doing whatever it takes to start this church. We meet together each week to pray and plan together, and I want you to join us. God uses ordinary people to change the world. The only question is if you want to be one of them. So here's what we're doing. And all the diversity that we find, friends, family, foreigners, there. In one area, we are going to partner. And we're not going to be part of their plant team. They've already planted. They've already launched. We are part of the support team for them. We are going to be financial partners with them. But we're going on mission field. We're going on a mission trip to Tuscaloosa. And all the Auburn fans, insert all your jokes here, right? Like, we, they need Jesus, all that. That's fine. That's cool. Uh, we're going to Tuscaloosa. We're going to help them out July the 30th. We're leaving first thing in the morning, driving down there for a weekend trip, July the 30th of this year. We are going down to Tuscaloosa and work with the block party. You'll hear more information about that in our announcements. But we are, we are going to be helping with that. And then you will be coming back after their service on Sunday morning. We will be coming back. You'll miss one day of work. If you work Monday through Friday, you'll miss one day of work. Uh, and so we do that and make that accessible to you. The cost that's involved is just the price of hotel stay. We're expecting it to be somewhere around $120 per person uh, as we continue to work through that. But we want to give you an on-ramp. Not just, not just tell you you need to be involved in Judea, but we want to give you an on-ramp to be a part of our Judean partnership with Church of the Oaks. And so maybe a response step for you looks like going and finding that next steps table when we leave today and Signing up for this mission trip, we get to learn more about what they're doing as a church and we get to be a part of what God's doing as we continue to partner with them. All right, but this is, what, this is what we're doing. This is what we want to create for you. It's not just this abstract idea, this intangible thing. This is something, action steps that you can do today. If you need to work out the dates, that's fine. We'll have the signups for a long time, um, but we would love for you to sign up so that we can make our space available uh, today, okay? Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me as we... Transition into a time of invitation. Listen, I want you to understand 
I want you to understand that missions is seen, is viewed in light of a relationship with Jesus. And so if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, maybe none of this calling, this, this idea of stewarding people that are not yourself, maybe it, 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 it doesn't translate for you. I want you to know that Scripture tells us for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us have fallen short. And, 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 and contrary to what culture would tell you, it's not the fact that you are a, overall a good person, but the fact that you have sin at all separates you from a holy God. But that's not where the story ends because Jesus, as Peter shared to Cornelius and the other Gentiles, Jesus has come and his blood has covered, making a covering for your sin and my sin if you would respond in faith to his gospel today. And so if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Christ, I want you to know that he offers that to you today. In just a moment, when I say amen, we're going to have a time of response. And if you want to respond to the gospel of Christ, you can come find me here at the front. We've got counselors who would love to talk to you about a decision that you need to make for Christ today. But whatever the case may be, whatever decision you need to make, maybe you need to pray that God would focus you more on Judean ministries, on people that are like you, foreigners that are around you, whatever the case may be, that God would lead you and direct you on mission. Maybe there's somebody that God has called you specifically to and you know it. Maybe God desires for you to intercede for them here at this altar. Maybe you want to join what God's doing here at North. This invitation is for you to respond however you see fit to respond. I would ask that you would just be obedient. You'd remove yourself from the equation and you would respond to Christ, your heart to his, whatever he may ask of you today. And we would love to help you make any decision that you need to. Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for what you've done in this place, how you've taught us, how you've instructed us through your word. Now, God, help us put feet to it right now. Let us respond to you, the gospel. Pray for one that needs to receive you as Lord and Savior today. Pray for one that needs to get their life realigned with you. But God, I pray that you would receive glory and honor in all that is done in our hearts.